what are you trying to accomplish conversation. We need to bring more customers in the door. We need to generate more pipeline. We need to bring brand awareness to a new solution. Marketing, how can you help? Or here's how you can help. And I think having those deeper conversations with your business partners is where you start. Move beyond sales. What is the impact of what you need to do? Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. And welcome to this week's episode of Revenue Insights. On this episode, I'm joined by Chris Kingman. He's the Global Head of Digital Sales Enablement at TransUnion. Chris has got over a decade of experience in sales enablement and even sits on the Board of Advisors of the Sales Enablement Society. Chris, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Lee. It's great to be here. So first things first, I'd love to know a bit more about your story um, and also, you know, particularly your story at TransUnion. I think you've been there for nearly 12 years now. So it'd be great to get a bit of perspective on what that's been like. Certainly. So uh, like many of my peers in enablement, I started at a tech startup uh, that lasted from, I think, about 2011 to 2013. And that tech startup went into bankruptcy and luckily TransUnion acquired us in bankruptcy, kept all of our folks on, and, and we were able to continue that work. Uh, when I started there, I, I was in the membership function. And within a few weeks, I was building out customer trainings. Um, and that's kind of where I, I dipped my toe into the enablement waters. And I don't think the term sales enablement existed back then, but I kept building um, disciplines of enablement in-house and sort of making sure that they provided value and then spun them out. And within a few years, I had a team of about 12 people overseeing sales training and development, uh, sales call QA, sales support, um, sales technology, operations, process, you name it. Um, from there, in 2018, I, I got an offer to move to the other side of the business, TransUnion's international arm. And I went from supporting a $100 million business to seven regions, really 33 countries. Um, and, you know, kind of dove in the deep end of supporting seven very different businesses across the globe. Um, it brought me to the UK, to Africa, to Hong Kong. Colombia, Canada, Brazil, um, all over the world. And really was responsible for not only sales strategies, um, but also enablement globally. And, and how do you stand up enablement when you have next to no resources, right? Individual contributor working in a matrix organization. Um, and then a year ago, I returned to the US in a global role to oversee digital enablement. So my responsibilities are for all sellers within digital capacities which right now is a lot of sellers. Um, certainly, you know, I'm not sure everybody has returned to the field. Um, and I cover inside sales globally, as well as sales technology for the entire enterprise. And all the while I was doing this at TransUnion, uh, working in sales enablement societies, being a founding member, um, spending time on the board there, and then uh, just getting myself out there through podcasts, through writings, partnering with, you know, maybe tech companies to do some writing, um, a lot of technology companies to do advisement on platforms, 
And uh, today I still very active in sales enablement society, working on the college curriculum for sales enablement with Johns Hopkins University. Uh, still very involved with Sales Enablement Pro and another uh, number of organizations um, working through sales and revenue enablement to kind of bring their practices or, or their advisory boards to life. I love I love the journey that you've been on and and can tell you've got a really rich experience in the space. So something that I'm really intrigued to know, going back to something that you said very much towards the beginning of that, was you know when you first started sales enablement was you know wasn't a thing um, and from your perspective, what would you say has been the biggest change that you've seen in the enablement space, you know, throughout your career? Um, so I'd say the the formalization of it as a discipline, and I would give a lot of credit to the Sales Enablement Society for bringing together the right folks to have the right conversations around that. And it generated a lot of buzz and interest, and they've done a great job of um socializing the concepts and, and bringing it to the forefront and bringing value to the conversation, especially around why do you need this? Or the way I like to think about it is, uh, you know, here's why companies who do this are winning. And I think that message has been broadcasted and especially with, you know, social media exploding, LinkedIn specifically, they've, they've really done a good job of getting the message out there. And of course, you have you know the evolution of sales technology, and uh, you're a marketer, so you know the Martech landscape is six thousand platforms in you know one hundred categories, and uh, sales enablement tech or sales tools can kind of have the same evolution there. And a lot of those companies, to their credit, saw enablement and said, "This is something that is that is permanent; it's not going away." So, how do we? How do we inter, inter, sort of intermesh our platform with the enablement story? And over time, those stories have become very refined. And you know, you have sales enablement platforms now, like MindTickle or MediaFly. Who? That's all they do. And I think it's it's been a great joint effort between people doing the job and then vendors um, or platform providers really seeing the value in it. And you know showing up with actual uh, beneficial tools that can really make some impacts. The thing that really resonates with me from what you've just said there is, you know, really um, uh, validating the why and why this is so valuable and actually proving the value to to, to salespeople of, you know, this is why we do this. Um, obviously, a lot of the, the guests that we have on the show come from a either from you know sales operations or revenue operations background. And what's so interesting in that space in particular at the minute is the challenge is really proving this is the value of why it exists, right? Um, so something that I'm quite curious to know is, um, particularly at TransUnion as well, how do you work with you know operations teams? How are you guys integrating together or is it a fairly separate function? Uh, we are a matrix organization, and so our culture is one of collaboration. I I really value the fact that I've never had to struggle with that, um, and I know that's not common. I know there are hierarchies and and uh, structures, um, but we have teams that all of them interface, and it's not hard to connect with somebody and say, "Here's what I need from you." And, and a great example is operations does sit separate from enablement. They do the reporting, uh, they do levels of analysis. And we can ask, you know, here's what we need or here's the information they need to run my business. And then I can bring it to my teams, my training teams, my tech teams, my insights teams and say, 
tell me what's happening with my business. And I think there's, you know, everybody understands how they contribute to the success of the organization. And so partnerships are, are key. Um, you know, what to me, enablement is about two things, people and relationships. And the relationship piece is very critical because you need to be very clear and very articulate of what you're trying to do and why. And it's not as simple as saying we're trying to, you know, get revenue. That's not enough. It has to be a little bit more of here's how we're going to make selling easier, streamline processes, better insights. We're going to give our sellers more detail about who the customer is, what they may need to buy or what's happening in their industry. And those partnerships, you know, I've worked on for over a decade now and they're, they're cemented. And so we've got, you know, a really great working order here. Amazing. And something that we were talking about beforehand that I'm keen to dive a bit more into is, you know, that move from sales enablement into revenue enablement. So can you talk a bit more around what that looks like at, at TransUnion and, and how you're really um, pioneering that change? Sure. Um, so I said this a long time ago at a, at a keynote. I think the most limiting thing about sales enablement is the word sales in the title. Um, because that makes people think that it's just sales. And sales is not, it's not everything, but it's, all, it's a whole lot of things. And you have other parts of your organization that do contribute to selling. And that's anywhere between marketing and the importance of uh, marketers to operations and delivering what you sell. We, you know, we, we realize that enablement is largely tactical. There's some strategic elements of it, but you do need to partner beyond sales to make things happen. Um, the easiest example is marketing, right? And everybody will agree that there's always been this contentious relationship between sales and marketing. Um, but I think the benefit of that being called out between enablement over the years has led to better conversations about, okay, how do we partner better? Let's talk about lead gen. Let's talk about brand awareness. Let's talk about campaigns, um, messaging assets. Here's what we need. Can you help us develop these things? And it's, it's, it goes back to that. Well, what are you trying to accomplish conversation? We need to bring more customers in the door. We need to generate more pipeline. We need to bring brand awareness to a new solution. Marketing, how can you help? Or here's how you can help. And I think having those deeper conversations with your business partners is where you start, right? Move beyond sales. What is, what is the impact of what you need to do? Or um, an easy thing you can compare it to is your go-to-market cycle, right? Or your go-to-market process. There's a variety of departments involved. So partner with each one and talk about what's, what's the immediate sales goal? Get this product out. What is the long-term goal and how can each individual part of that support it? And how can sales support it? Um, I think sales is you know underutilized in terms of a source of customer information. There's market studies. You can look at product studies. You can look at white papers. But what is the quickest way to understand what's happening to your customer base? Talk to them, right? Um, and so sales, you know, can be this sort of funnel for information that comes back. And after a while, if you establish um, the right expectations with your sellers, anecdotes become anecdata. You know, one customer saying something is wrong or something doesn't work or I'm experiencing this pressure is it's one customer. But if you hear it four or five, 20, 50 times, that's a trend. And that trend should be brought back to your product team. And it should be brought back to your marketing team and your operations team to then recalibrate your strategies. 
And that's just a, it's a really simple example of a cyclical yet strategic improvement that all goes back to sales. In your organization, was it a natural progression towards that where it was, uh, this just makes sense? Or did it require a level of alignment perhaps from the top of the business to be, to be like, this is the way that we're going to do things? So, you know, we were certainly, um, just like every other business, we had our silos, right? And I think silo breaking is, is something I've, I've talked about in, in past podcasts and things like that. Of, that that's where you start, right? Have the conversations break down the walls. Um, just from my experience, the best way to do that is to tell them what you're trying to achieve and also give them the clean slate to say, maybe this partnership hasn't been the best in the past the past, we're going to move forward. And here's what we need to be successful together. Um, That's why I said people and partnerships, right? Or relationships. We've, you know, so we've done a really good job of navigating those conversations. And and I don't want to say it's solely my relationship building skills. That is not the case. It's just ongoing, constant communication and alignment of, you know, where we need to go and talking about how to get there. It's, It's a group it's a group project, right? It's a field trip. Everybody's coming along. It's not just a sales responsibility or a marketing responsibility, an ops responsibility. Revenue enablement is everyone's job. I, I, I'm interested to jump actually a little bit back to something that you said before in terms of um, like how you're proving the value of, of the enablement function. And, and in particular, you know, now you've gone from sales enablement into revenue enablement. I'm curious to know if you have any examples of now, after making that switch, how you're proving that value, you know, to the marketing team, perhaps to the customer success team and beyond? Sure. So I would say you never want to let go of your leading and lagging indicators, right? Those are those are foundational metrics and always analyze and assess those. Where we've been trying to layer on analysis is, um, especially with this switch to digital, is at the individual seller level, Right. So you have salespeople, they are not confined to a nine to five. They are not sitting in a cubicle making calls. So the expectations that you have talk times and dials kind of goes out the window. It's, it does matter. You do need to have effort and things like that. But where do you look now? And so what we've kind of done is gone to analyzing output or activity as it relates to production. How many phone calls, how many emails, how many voicemails, how many um, task activities are tied to an opportunity? And then you stretch that across the life of the opportunity. It's age, it's time and stage, it's close or conversion ratios. And you get to a point that says this is the level of effort needed to close a deal. We're taking that, we're combining that with call metrics and call quality and call analysis. We're putting a layer of um, training and development over that and said, when did this person attend a training? Was there an increase in these numbers? Was there an increase in their activities, in their quality scores? We're integrating um, training content into call recording and quality monitoring. Did you talk about the product? Did you use the right terminologies or the right pitch? Were you answering the questions correctly? So we're layering in all of these really subjective things to get a more comprehensive score because things are not as cut and dry as they used to be. And so we're sifting through more data than ever and we're generating more data than ever, but we're all trying to get to the single point to show or to determine across our business, 
There's varying parts of the business, varying levels of sellers or, or tiers, if you will, or lines of business. What's the level of effort needed to hit the mark? And how are you tracking to that? Are you above it or are you below it? And then from there, we're getting prescriptive in, okay, you're not doing the level of effort needed. Here's what you need to know to be successful, not be on the phone for three hours because that's who knows what you could be doing, not 50 dials. But if you call and you have 10 conversations a day and you send 30 emails and you do 30 LinkedIn posts, here's the average return on that. And it's almost like a return on activity. It's really interesting. And I mean, very simply, what, what has been the res- what has been the feedback to that? Is that has that been like, oh my gosh, like mind blowing, like wow. I never I never thought it was gonna be that simple. <laughs> it's definitely not simple. Um, there's a <laughs> lot of data to sift through. Sure. It's 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 very hard to get a lot of that data in one place. Um, I'm very fortunate I have a lot of talented individuals around me who uh, happen to just make me look good all the time. Um, it's, it was a massive undertaking to just define where the data came from. And, and if you go down this path, I would encourage folks to start there. What data exists in your world, right? Where does it live? And you're pulling from sales tools, you're pulling from CRM, you're pulling from your billing system or your delivery system. And then what data don't you have? And a, a big part of our exercise was saying or, or asking our leaders, we know you have questions about seller performance and there's there's questions that we can answer, but there are also questions we cannot answer because we don't have data. So what are those questions? So we can find the data or we can figure out how to get the data to then answer the question. And you go through this big mapping process and then you go through this very ambiguous process to say, we have all of this data. What can we infer if we look at this and this and this? Does that tell us anything? Does it matter, right? And you'll be able to tell a lot of things about a salesperson, but a lot of it is useless information. And so you have to weed through all of your data, all of your insights, and then go back to your leaders and say, what really matters? What really, production matters, we get that, but what does that look like? And then you sort of reverse engineer, we've reverse engineered to kind of get to a point to say, you know, the example I gave is return on activity. If we have somebody that, you know, calls a lead or follows a cadence to this, you know, 97% accuracy. If you do that 95% of the time, you'll be able to get close 95% of the way to your quota, some, some metric like that. The reception has been great. Um, the ability to get through all of the data and make it ingestible has been an absolute challenge and it is no easy undertaking. Um, so good luck to anybody that does try it. But I think as we kind of stay in this, digital environment, the the focus is going to be on how much work do I really have to do to be successful? Data is such a common topic that we talk about on this podcast and, you know, data quality and data health. And what's actually really interesting to me is for, for you guys, it's okay, now we've got the data. Now, how do we start to process it? Often the challenge that people have is, I you know, I don't even have the data in the first place. So for considering, I think, by the sounds that you're kind of one step ahead of that, what what would you say is the the secret really to getting that data and getting quality data to then be able to glean the insights that you need to to improve your processes? Sure. So I mean, you're you're spot on. Garbage in, garbage out, right? 
Um, and I love I love sellers, but some of them just don't want to leave good notes or they don't want to use the CRM, even though it's for their benefit. And that's okay. It's it's an accepted part of the job. Yeah. Um, so I think some of the things that you really need to focus on is is what what data point tells you the thing that you need to know, um, and then how do you capture that? Now, I don't like. I don't like a lot of technology. I don't like the CRM to have, you know, you're scrolling for two, three minutes and it's got two, three, four pop-ups and custom objects and all of these. I think it's cluttered. Um, I think the CRM should be about as intrusive as an Apple watch, right? You, here's what I got to do. Okay, great. I'll go do it. When it comes to the data capture, how do you automate information that you need to collect, right? And, and you might not be able to. So what's the trade-off, right? Do we do we slow our sellers down by an additional 10 seconds, but the information will help us go do this? Um, the other thing is make, make everything as sort of simple as possible. And the term I love to use is paint by numbers simple, right? There's no way to mess it up. You know this box is green and this box is red. Um, like an example of something that I'm working on is I want to capture why our customers buy our solutions. Now I can go talk to all of my sellers and they'll be able to tell you why they buy it and what it does and the benefit. But I want it in the CRM, right? Because I don't want, I don't want to have to like remember. I don't want to have to remember why people buy things. So if you think about, okay, what's the easiest way to capture this information? Well, an opportunity description. You could train your sellers, okay, you need to put these four or five things in there, but you're probably not going to get that, right? You're going to get the person that says, you know, XYZ solution, customer has XYZ, whatever. They're going to keep it simple. They're going to keep it brief. But if you do drop downs and you you align as an organization, you say, we solve 10 challenges and we sell to 15 industries. Here's the 10 challenges that we solve. Um, here's the 10 market conditions that we're up against. And you, you, you build out drop downs that are required in your CRM. Pretty soon, you're going to be able to tell who's buying what and for what reason. And you're also going to be able to tell, more importantly, who's not buying that that should. And I think that information is, you want to get a salesperson to use your CRM properly, show them the ROI on it. Hey, seller, if you put this data in, here's what I can tell you. And for me, one of the biggest biggest things for me is I want to take the thinking out of selling. We, we don't hire sales folks to come in and be strategists to be market researchers. They should be versed on who they sell to and why and what's going on in their world. But I don't want them to sift through and comb through data. So if you use the CRM properly, I'll be able to arm you with call these people and sell these solutions and, and say this thing, right? At this time in this channel, et cetera. And do nine calls because you'll get a 95% return. And sort of piecing it all together to where minimal CRM usage maximizing data capture that then feeds right back into here's the level of activity necessary for success. I completely agree with the concept. And I think for, for any salesperson, just to be like, if you focus on the on these these opportunities, uh, then that's going to help you not only hit your quota, but you know, to the, to the point that you can actually have, you're not you're frantically trying to close deals by the end of the end of the quarter, right? Um, that that's definitely a a, a dream from sure like many businesses to get to. So, what would you say is the uh, the, the secret 
to being able to do that? How do you um, how do you create that within your CRM um, to get to the point where a salesperson goes in? It's like, yep, this is what I need to focus on. I don't need to get into the weeds of everything that's in here. I just have what I need. Sure. There's a few things that we we really look at. So one is just be conscious of how much time does it take to accomplish um, certain activities in your CRM. A time motion study is a great way to do it, right? Uh, and you look at you have to look at all parts of your business. You can't design a CRM based on your top tier sellers, right, or your sellers who square off against a single customer, because in reality they're going to use the CRM for 30 minutes a day, and that's it. They live in their inbox. They're not a good judge of system usability or user experience. The inverse of that is go talk to your people who have to create 20, 30 records or opportunities, leads a day. Time them and see how long it takes. And time both your most proficient person and your absolute technophobe who you know takes their time with it and get a good read on what it, the amount of time it takes. And then how do you improve that? Do you need these fields? Is this information necessary? Are we capturing things that no one looks at? Um, one of the tools I found years ago for Salesforce, I believe it's called Field Trip. And it tells you if this field is being completed um, or if it's being used. And it was eye-opening that on some pages we had, you know, 12% of the fields were used. That tells me that there is way too much going on in this field. I would rather have 20 mandatory fields than 40 optional ones, right? Um, so go through the process, watch your people do it, time them, and then refine it and take out things that don't matter. Automate as much as you can. And that's, that's, a, that's a broad statement, but you know, think about how your sellers actually work. Does the seller go into their CRM every day? and look at their dashboards and know to click through all the dashboards? Or do they really just need an Excel report pushed to them every day that they work off of? Just because it's ugly doesn't mean it's not the best way to do it, right? And as much as I think everybody's like, I want to get out of Excel and I want everything in the CRM, and I certainly want that too, sometimes there's just efficiency and for efficiency's sake. And there's no need to comp- complicate it. I don't, I don't think technology solves all problems. Um, and, and it can certainly make some problems. So spend time with your people and then automate. And then the last piece is to the, the last point I've made there was just figure out what data you actually need to collect in the easiest, least intrusive way to collect it. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And, um, you know, to, to a point that you made earlier, it's like a, from a marketing standpoint, we've ended up at a point with like 6,000 different tools trying to do a million different things. And, and it feels to an extent like sales is going in a similar direction, but actually, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, that a lot of this you're still being able to build in like a spreadsheet, right? Um, something that um, to to kind of pull us out of this conversation and, and move us into into a slightly different direction. I'd love to know, um, you know, in, as you mentioned in your role now, you know, very much coming at it from a digital perspective. Is there a you know a project that you're that you've been working on this year that you're particularly passionate about? Um, certainly, I would say a couple things. Actually, I I have a great team of enablement professionals and trainers on my team, and they've put together in conjunction with sales leadership a um, a talent development pipeline, if you will, or a career path. Um, 
we've, you know, we decided on the type of seller or professional that we're going to look to hire within the inside sales or the digital selling organization. And my people in sales leadership put together a zero, you know, you start, here's your new hire onboarding to you complete your third year. Um, four kinds of training, three vendors, um, new hire onboarding that is uh, four weeks plus a 90-day support program, uh, a traditional transunion, this is who we are, this is what we do, new hire pro- uh, program, a role certification program. So if you're a hunter or farmer, just to use generic terms, you get the same training that everybody else that comes through the door is that as a hunter or a farmer. And if you switch roles, you get the, uh, the other one. And there's a sales manager sort of certification as well. And then you go into... Th- um, two levels of sales skills training, so intermediate and advanced with another vendor. Then from there, you are good to go to the field. You're good to go to transition into sales management, or you're you're just going to keep winning the sales contest and, and winning the trips and the cars or the or the big check, whatever you want. But you're you you have a master's degree in selling, as we like to call it. Um, so I'm very happy with that. You know, I, you hear a lot of a lot of chatter online over the last few years of, you know, new hire onboarding is no good. Ongoing sales training is no good. Um, and I think, you know, I'm very confident that we've actually solved for this. So I'm very happy with what we've been able to do. And while this may sound like an obvious question, what was the original goal behind that initiative? Because I, I guess that you can come at it from two angles. One is to, you know, can consistently scale revenue growth, but then there's also the retention of your salespeople as well. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's spot on, right? Um, it's incredibly hard to hire an exterior candidate into an organization, into a field position, um, who understands the business to a level of depth and breadth that we expect, that understands the product offerings, that understands the markets and how we exist in the, the competition. So we begin to sort of foster that knowledge very early on. And really, the only thing that changes is the the complexity of the skills that you're learning as we're preparing you to go from a digital um, digital sales environment into a field environment, if you wish, and then sort of the escalation of the size of the customer. Right, bigger customers typically means more complex challenges. Doesn't always, but we're preparing you for those conversations and in, in, to be successful in that environment. Mm, amazing. With we shall roll from as you call it, field sales into more of the uh, more digital sales. Has there, has there been unique challenges as part of that in comparison, or would you say it's similar? Unique challenges in just supporting digital selling or, or the career pathing? Uh, more generally in terms of digital selling. Certainly. So the, you know, moving from a, a centralized inside sales organization to a, a decentralized team. You lose the um, you lose the ability to see everyone working in one at one time. You lose that nine to five, you know, selling window, if you will. Um, but I don't. I don't. It's a it's an opportunity and a challenge, right? Was there was there time to kind of figure out how it worked? Absolutely, because for the first six months, everybody was in a nine to five. I need to sit at my desk and make phone calls. Um, but as the world kind of adjusted, I think part of the driver to move to the activity driven or the the outcome driven type measuring that we're doing is 
selling has changed, right? And buying has changed. Um, you know, I don't think if you try to make a prospecting call from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Eastern time, you're probably going to get a voicemail because most professionals that have children are picking them up from school. They're not going to take your call, right? But if you make that same phone call at 4 p.m. or maybe 6 p.m., you might be able to catch them or send the email a little bit later in the day. It's the first one they open the next day. You might be able to get a little bit more attention. So there are certainly challenges in understanding I think the time of selling was a big one, right? And then the approaches too. Now suddenly everyone is digital 24-7. Everyone's in a Zoom call. So how do you how do you sell in that capacity? How do you sell when you don't have um, a captive audience, if you will? Not that digital selling typically did, but the 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 changes in the environment I think did impact the selling. The accessibility was impacted. And so how do you have conversations with with customers but you're you know it's a little less formal if you will they're not in their office you're not in yours um how do you keep it short and to the point how do you clarify value for them in a very tight window all the while being flexible in the means and the timing of your communications i think are all the the immediate challenges that we got and the first thing that we did was just get rid of the talk time and and the um, the number of call expectations, we we lowered them, um, and then we just really focused on the output. Work when you need to work, but understand that your your output is what we're going to be looking at. And you know, we supported them by saying, "Here's here's digital selling best practices. Here's how to have compelling digital meetings or do visuals and and all of those things." Initially, into the lockdowns and whatnot, uh, but eventually, it just subsided into. Make sure you're having the right conversation. What is, what is the customer's pain point? Talk about how we can provide value and then move on from there, right? And, and so I think those are some of the immediate challenges that we've been able to navigate. I'm going to give you a really nice, broad, open, uh, penultimate <laughs> question. Do you think uh, digital selling is a, a good thing and it's here to stay? Or do you think we'll gravitate back towards a more traditional way of selling? I think all the big uh, research and consulting firms said digital selling was going to be 80% of selling by like 2030. And that was just accelerated. Um, will we go back to in-person? Absolutely. Um, it's already happened you know, across the globe, I'm sure. I know a lot of folks that are right back on planes every week. I think some organizations have realized we don't have to see customers. And some organizations have realized, I really don't want to see salespeople anymore. Um, and that's great. That's great because it redefines the relationship. Um, one of the things I'm really working towards for the future is the revenue and the revenue model supporting the customer engagement model. And I believe customer engagement is kind of the future of of selling. Is you know there are customers that want you to show up, and they're going to want to be face to face, and they're going to bring in their team, and you're going to bring your team, and if that's what they're asking for, you should do it. But there's also customers now who have realized, I don't need to see a sales rep. I just need to understand the solution to my problem and give give me that and give me some price and and I'm good. And that's great too, right? No need to burden them or to call them and, hey, how's the weather down there? Just checking in with you, right? Those, Those things need to go out the window. And I think they largely have. Amazing. All right, final question. If there's one book that you could recommend to other revenue leaders, sales leaders, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. Could be fiction, non-fiction. Whatever <laughs> Could be <want>. fiction. 
it's happened. It's we've had it. I love it. Uh, I'll give you two books, and then um, I'll explain. So I'll allow the it. first. The first book is Cal Newport, Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. And that's all for me professionally. It was a turning point in that it, it really just says, like, stop doing what you love and focus on what you're good at and you'll learn to love it. If you're in this enablement space, I haven't met an enablement practitioner that isn't fanatical about it and loves what they do. Um, I think that book will give you a good mindset or a framework to say, okay, where am I? best suited to focus on. Double down on your strengths, right? Don't don't try and reinforce your weaknesses and go that way. I think that book is a phenomenal book and it's great. Um, the other book, Jonah Berger, Invisible Influence. And this book is all about why people make decisions and how they make decisions. Decision justification. It's very interesting because Gartner came out with um, some work called SenseMaker, I believe two years ago at this point. And it's all about consensus driving in sales. That being one of the two biggest deciding factors in selling. The other one being, does the salesperson understand my challenges, my business, and the context of my market? As a, as you go upstream, as you become more senior in revenue and sales enablement, revenue enablement, you have to have more and more elevated or executive conversations and you have to understand why people make decisions and understanding how and why they make decisions will change how you approach them, right? Understanding their motivation to to make that decision, understanding their perception for making the decision that they're going to make. There's no, you know, there's no shortage of politics in any organization, especially when you're trying to do something to impact revenue. And you, you know, on paper can look like an operating expense. So you have to be able to understand how to have the right conversations and motivate people and, and get them to understand what you're trying to do or what you will do and have the sort of the skills to navigate the decision making. Fantastic recommendations. Uh, love that you gave two as well. Um, Chris, it's been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. One last thing before we go uh, to our listeners, if they want to learn more from you, connect with you, um, Find more, find out more about you. Uh, where can they find you? I'm on LinkedIn, Christopher Kingman. Um, anybody and anybody that wants to talk about enablement, shoot me a message on there. I will always carve out some time to connect with anybody, help them troubleshoot, problem solve, or you know, put together a plan to to go attack enablement in their organization. I'm happy to do it. Awesome. We'll put a link to that down in the show notes. Chris, thank you again. It's been wonderful having you on. Um, And to everyone that's been listening, thank you so much. And we'll catch you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.